All right, Genesis House, why don't we gather in? If you've turned in your Bibles to the Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, that would be great. Why don't we stand together and read the, the second chapter? This is what Peter writes. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and carried them into pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare Noah, sorry, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world and on the godly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, go to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, wouldn't think that the, at the outset that the understanding of what a false teacher looks like in our churches would be, not, be important to us, but we know from Scripture and from some of the things the Lord said that uh, this is a very real reality in our world today. We pray, God, that we listen up to this because from the leadership down to the congregant members, this is a, an important issue that we learn to deal with and handle appropriately. And it's such a concern for Peter and Jude for example, they wrote like basically entire books to deal with it. So we know that your word is relevant 2,000 years later. So we, we are prepared to listen to your instruction. We look forward to our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, even though we read... Uh, eight or nine verses there, we're only going to handle the first three or four. So we just had to keep going because it only made grammatical sense to do so. But we're going to handle the first three for sure and, and the fourth one as well. So last week we spent our time looking at the reliability of the Old Testament uh, prophecy and the process of how prophecy was put together. And the key verses for us were 20 and 21 of chapter 1. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the big message from Peter last week was that even though God used men to write his word and his prophetic literature, God was still the source of truth. And he used the Holy Spirit to move through these men to write his words down. Now, the key marker of a true prophet, you'll remember, was that they didn't speak uh, their own thoughts and minds and have them written down. They, would, they, were, they, they spoke God's, and the key marker was they would never fail to come true. If it was from the Lord, 100% of the time, whenever they spoke, it would come true. And we picked that up in 1 Samuel chapter 3. These false teachers, though, would claim things, and they wouldn't come true. 
And he had to have 100% accuracy. It didn't matter if he had like a 60-40 scoring. You weren't a, a true prophet of the Lord. Now, the reason for the reminder, of course, was that uh, Peter knew eventual false teachers were going to come into their church and uh, present things in the name of God. And so he wanted the church to know how to decipher what was truth and what wasn't. But beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Peter begins to describe the characteristics of these men. So when they showed up, they would know how to recognize them and right away deal with them appropriately. So today I want to present to you the characteristics or the portrait of a false teacher. And I'm going to suggest from the passages five things that mark a false teacher. Now, this, these five things are specific to these men in, in his day. Uh, in our day, there will be teachers that will fulfill all five categories, but there might be teachers that just hit three of them. But still, if you, if you hit three out of the five, you still have to, you'll still classify in the area of false teaching. Okay? So the first thing I want you to notice, uh, well, actually, here's, a, here's my uh, outline. Uh, I'll keep referring back to these. This is the, the profile. Their sphere of influence, uh, their secret tactics, their surprising success, their sustaining motive, and their sad end. Alright? So let's deal first with the sphere of influence. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, what he says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Notice the location of where these false teachers and prophets have been operating or will operate in the future. He mentions them first of having operating, operated amongst the people. Now in the New Testament, this is a reference, of course, to the Jews and the Israelites. Uh, you, can, you can see this all through the New Testament where the reference to people, the people, is the Jewish nation. Uh, the you here is a reference, of course, to the New Testament church, which would be made up of predominantly Gentile people. But what's key in both, or for both, is that the primary location for these false teachers and false prophets in carrying out their ministries is not in the secular world. You might think, false teachers, oh yeah, they're out there. No, he says, false teachers are operating amongst you. They were, they've always been present in the days of Israel. They are also going to be present in the, in the days of uh, in the church in the coming future. So the location of their sphere of influence is within the household of God, in the community of believers. That's their favorite place to be. And of course, in Israel's day, these false prophets plagued them. We saw last week in our story about Micaiah, when we looked at 1 Kings 22. Remember, he, he was a legitimate prophet, but he went, up to, he went up against 400 false prophets at one time regarding whether Israel should go to war against Assyria. 400. In one, in one sitting, in the book of Jeremiah, especially 23, in the book of Ezekiel, especially chapter 13, you see them, the presence of false teachers in their day and their fight against them. And so severe was, the, was the, the, the prevalence of these people and their detriment to the community that God said, whoever is amongst them, if they're if they to start prophesying in false ways and teaching to lead people astray, they were to be put to death. Deuteronomy 13.5 says, That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. You shall purge the evil from among you. So God knew this is a big deal. They were going to be prevalent amongst the people. And so the way to get rid of them was a death penalty. And Peter says this, just like there's always been present, the presence of false teachers in the, New, in the Old Testament and Israel's day, 
there will be among you as well. They'll be coming. And so it's nothing new here. You're not to be surprised by them. Uh, it's not an if, but a when they're going to show up. You can expect them. So how did Peter know? How did he know? Well, text doesn't tell us, but I can tell you one thing we do know for sure, because Jesus told them this was going to happen. Matthew 24, verse 9 to 12. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. Peter knew, not only from Jewish history, but as a Jew, but also from Jesus' own words, that this was going to continue on, and so as an apostle, he was going to be, have to be on guard for things like this. So common, actually, was the... Uh, presence of false teachers, an elder shepherd role uh, it was, um, was had to be able to exhort sound doctrine and refuse those who contradict Titus 1.9. It was necessary because there's going to be people coming into the church who are going to basically preach false doctrine and so on and so forth. The key for me while studying this though was the location of these false prophets among the people but they love to be in the household of God. You see, the church is one of Satan's favorite places to be. Ever think of that? Who's the church for? You think, oh, it's for the holy people. Satan loves it in here. Because he can, he wants to get in here and just completely dismantle us. He doesn't love what we're doing and who we are, but he loves being here because he wants to lead us astray. So how does this happen? How can he even infiltrate our churches through these men who come in and teach false doctrine and truths. Well, it's a very interesting. I found a passage in 2 Timothy verse 4, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. It speaks about how Satan gets a foothold in the household of God. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and, the, and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Do you see what happens here? The false teachers come in by a combination of two things. One, compromising leadership, who won't fulfill their God-given role. And two, a fickle congregation, who wants the, some, to hear certain things and adopt certain beliefs. Okay, a combination of a compromising leadership and a mindset of a congregation that wants to adopt the world's um, standards for, for righteousness and living. I'll show you this in more detail, right here, with the role of leadership. This is just me summarizing everything that was said, basically word for word, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 there. The role of leadership is to preach the word of God, tell others the good news. We're to fully carry out the ministry God has given us, patiently correcting, rebuking, and encouraging people with good teaching, keeping a clear mind in every situation, and not to be afraid of suffering for the Lord. So, we're to be constantly on guard, and always protecting, looking out to protect the sheep. 
We're to be studying the Word of God, proclaiming and defending the truth, correcting wrong behavior, uh, calling out sin if need be, and also providing words of encouragement, which is we all need. And we're not to be disil easily disillusioned. We're to keep a clear mind in every situation. So the Word of God has to be central in, in encouraging and in correcting. And we have to be constantly preaching and teaching and using this as the foundation for leading the congregation. That's the shepherd's job. When they fail to do so, it gives Satan a foothold and sets a table for him to come in to the church and gain, gain hold. Now what's the church's role? Be willing to listen to, to sound and wholesome teaching. Not to follow after your own desires and look for your teaching that simply tickles your ears. And you're not to reject the truth and chase after myths. So to recap, you're not to want your ears tickled. In other words, you're not to look for teachers or messages that only make you feel good. That affirm you in the way you are and make you all just focus on your happiness. Or your own needs and your own desires and your own wants. If they line up with the Lord, then great. That's awesome. But there are times they're not. And so if you just bounce from teacher to teacher, church to church, looking for someone that has a me-centered gospel, it doesn't challenge you in leading a life of holiness or rejecting sin or taking responsibility, then that sets the ground again for false teachers to come in. Because when they come in, their messages are attractive to you because you want to hear those things. So as a church, you want to be a pursuer of truth. And even though you may not like everything you hear, you still have to just say, is it truth? Does it come from the Word of God? And if so, I have to accept that in my life. Holiness has to be your number one concern over happiness. And if happiness comes as a result of holiness, then wonderful. God that made that very clear by the way He structured the tabernacle. You couldn't just enter any way you wanted. There was a, a requirement to teach about how holy the Lord was. The second um, profile characteristic, I should say, of a, of a false teacher is their secret tactics. Their secret tactics. So if you read, up, read with me again in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The key word is secretly here, because this describes the, the method by which they get their message out there. So a, a false teacher doesn't come with a megaphone and a banner announcing their false doctrine and their way of life. Here I am, I've arrived, look at me, I can't wait to lead you astray. They're very subtle in the way they come into the church and they're deceptive. They're unsuspecting. I like the way my commentator I read uh, wrote it. And his name is Douglas Moo. Um, he said, uh, secrecy does not, does not mean this. It does not mean that they are hiding what they are teaching. Rather, they are covering up to the degree to which their teaching differs from the, from, from the accepted apostolic truth. So they're not like, going to necessarily flat out hide it. Uh, they are going to cover it up to the degree in, to which their teaching differs from the accepted truth. So they come using God's name, they come using Christian terms and phrases, but they take the truth concerning Jesus in the way of the Christian life and turn it around and making something he was never intended to be or the way he wanted you to live out the life of a Christian as well, he, and flipping that on its head. This makes you think of Adam, or Adam and Eve in the Garden of Satan. I've always been 
curious about that story, that historical account where Satan comes up to Eve and she's not like uh, thrown aback by the way he approaches her. He doesn't, she's not like spooked or says, get out of here. She, she actually sort of encouraged the conversation. She's not afraid of him. There's a natural relationship that sort of starts off. And uh, they have this conversation. He, she was very welcoming of him. And his lie was initially very hard to detect. He used God's word as the source of his material. But he just threw a couple of twists and turns in there that was sort of like kind of hard to figure out for her. And Satan tell, or the Bible tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so do false teachers. So they come in with light to share mixed with deception. They make, they, they introduce um, false doctrine that it sound, in a way that sounds attractive initially and not heretical. Can I give you an example? I'm so glad that we all share a common faith like you, I believe that Jesus died to forgive us for our sins. I actually believe he's the son of God. And I actually believe that he, was, he died and he was resurrected. So as a listener, you think, preach it, brother. I think the same thing. Four weeks later, have you ever considered having your children baptized? So that they can become a child of God and receive forgiveness for their sins? And your head sort of tilts like a dog who hears a high whistle. They're like, come again? Come again? That's how it comes in. That's the secrecy of the tactics. And Peter makes it clear. These message are, messages are destructive heresies. You pick that up in the verse. They're destructive heresies. The Greek word is utter, to come to utter ruin, to be destroyed. The same, used, the same word is used for perishing in the New Testament. And virtually every time it's used in the New Testament has to do with one's eternal destiny. Utter destruction has to do with where you spend your life, with the Lord or separated from Him. And these false teachers are introducing destructive heresies because they lead people away from God. And if they adopt their policy and adopt their teaching, they will end up separated from Him in the end. So what was the content of their heresy in Peter's day? Well, from the context of the letter, um, uh, it would be the same as the Old Testament prophet, false prophets in Israel's day. Uh, this idea that God was not going to judge sin. Uh, the life of immorality was going to be okay to live because as, long as, you've been, as long as you're one of, like a child of God through circumcision or whatever, you're okay with the Lord. A promise of peace and safety no matter how you lived your life. Now, that was kind of the message that these false teachers were doing as well. God's not going to judge. He's not going to come back. He's not coming back in the second coming. You can live a life of immorality and be okay with the Lord. He, we can promise you peace and safety. Now, specifically, the heresy here that he does point out is that they denied the master who bought them. In verse 1, they denied the master who bought them. The word master occurs 10 times in the New Testament, and it means one who has supreme authority. Used in, in master-servant relationships, used in terms of God and Jesus Christ in relationship to, to the world and humanity. 
so one who has supreme authority. These false teachers rejected any notion of Jesus Christ having authority over in their lives or in anyone else's life that they taught. So basically a person can be a believer and free to call their own shots in their own life. Now you, you and I know how appealing that message would be. You can be forgiven of sin, but you basically still are in control of how you want to live. It's a very attractive message, especially under, in situations where we often end up in trouble, right? And that's the problem. When we deny the Lord as master, we end up usually in trouble that God has tried to prevent us from falling into. When we refuse to make Christ Lord, sometimes it can, uh, well, often, I should say, or almost every time, depending on the individual and what the nature of the issue is, um, you can end up in financial trouble. If you refuse to make him Lord, you can end up in parenting trouble. If you refuse to make him Lord, you can end up in marital trouble. If you refuse to make him Lord, you can end up in trouble in all sorts of ways with dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness that's just killing you inside. So again, when someone comes along and says, if you just do life this way, I mean, it's pretty attractive because it's, it's all about our needs, our wants, and our desires. But again, it's important that we don't deny the Master who bought us. How about their surprising success? Verse 2. It says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Here we see Peter's concern for the presence of false teachers in the church. It wasn't because only a few believers were going to get affected, but many were going to follow after their teaching. Many. And again, we just talked about why. The attractiveness of their message. Specifically, that one could live a life totally unbecoming as a follower of Christ, lead a life of sensuality, as it says here, and still uh, be okay with the Lord. And why did it matter so much for him? Well, because the reputation of the gospel was at stake. He says there, we don't want the way of truth being maligned. Uh, the word maligned means to be defamed or slandered. So basically, Peter didn't want the, the gospel to be slandered in the outside world. He didn't want hypocrisy to mar the church. And he was concerned for the reputation of the church uh, to the outside world. This is a New Testament theme. Uh, Peter, himself, Peter himself even speaks about this in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that if any of them come to Christ, they can basically praise God for your, you being an example. So keep your behavior amongst the non-Christians excellent, so that if they come to know the Lord through, your, through that process, they will see your example and be able to praise God for it. This is Peter in the first letter. And of course, this is especially true in areas of how one conducts themselves in areas of sexuality. These teachers, of course, were not only practicing themselves, but were teaching others to do this as well. And they were teaching them to be unrestrained. You see the word that the many will follow their sensuality. That word sensuality means debauchery or vulgar conduct. So these teachers were saying, um, they want, they're teaching unrestrained immorality as part of a way of being a follower of Christ. And I remember being at college um, a, a couple of years ago in, in Regent College, 
And uh, a professor said to me, uh, he said, you know, Andrew, uh, one of the ways that everyone knew you're a Christian in, in, the, in the Roman era, 2,000 years ago, do you know what really identified one as a true believer, what the one thing was? And I just sort of like, you know, stared at him, listened, and he says, how you controlled your body in the area of sexuality. In the Roman culture, when it was that rampant, he says that was the one marker that would make it so obvious that you were a Christian. Interesting, considering what's happening in our culture today. As we get more and more towards the Roman type of culture, that our grandparents and our parents maybe not faced 50, even 100 years ago to the same degree as we are now. As I think of the young kids in this church as they grow up, how we handle our bodies in this era will be a key indicator to the world of whether we belong to Christ or not. And again, it's too important to see the cause and effect of how this occurred. Because once a person denies the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ in one's life, it sets a table for all other sorts of heretical teaching to come in, both in theology and in practice of how you live out the life. And this is important for us to remember. Their sustaining motive. What's their sustaining motive? Well, here Peter gives it to us in verse 3. He says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The motivation behind all false teachers here is not for your and mine spiritual health or a love for God, but for the profit of their own bank account. They're in it for the money. That's a mark of all false teachers in the New Testament, a love for money. And Paul speaks about this. He says in, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, uh, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And before he's speaking about, again, false teachers. This is why in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherds are encouraged to oversee the church not for sordid gain, in other words, not for, for money, but with eagerness. In other words, we are to lead the church with a joyful willingness and not to make, look to make a buck off of the congregate members or the sole benefit of trying to get wealthy. These false teachers are in it for the money, but they masquerade as in, as in, it's, in it's a concern for your spiritual health. So these false teachers are motivated by greed and not for the spiritual concern for you or any, any other church for that matter. And finally, their sad end. It says here that uh, in their judgment from long ago, sorry, in their greed they will exploit you with false words, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This idea in verse 3 of God's judgment uh, not being idle and in verse 4 of destruction not being asleep is really Peter's way of saying that since the beginning of history, God has never sat back and let false teachers go unpunished for their heresy. He's not idle or asleep in handing out justice. He's always been active in bringing judgment down on those who cho choose to rebel against God in these ways and lead people astray, whether in this life or the next. And so to support this, Peter uses three examples from the Old Testament. Just to say, hey, remember what he did in the past? He's going to do in the future. These examples are in chapter, or verses 4 through 10. And he gives the example of Noah. What happened in Noah's day with the people then? Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened then? 
And also in verse 4, which we're going to deal with now, what I think is a reference to fallen angels in chapter 6 of Genesis. Now, I'm going to have to, I'll just give you a precursor, because in chapter 4, well, let's read verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them in pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. This, this, uh, I believe that this passage is talking about Genesis 6. However, not everyone's fully convinced because Peter doesn't give us um, the time period per se and give us details around this at, in this juncture point. So you, the other teachers might say, well, that's not Genesis 6, you can't prove that. But I'm going to suggest it is and I'm going to walk you through why I think it is now. But I have been known to be wrong and I have changed my theology in other areas before. So um, this may change in the future, but for now I believe this to be true. And I do know I'm accountable to God for what I'm about to teach you. <laughs> So after rambling on for 30 seconds there, let me just present what I think is going on here. Look at Genesis 6 with me on the PowerPoint. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years old. The, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after, where when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. There are people in the Christian community, and I understand why, they teach that the sons of God here are, is actually a reference to human beings who are basically from the descendants of Seth. So Noah had three, three sons, Shem, or Shem, I should say. Shem, uh, Japheth, and, uh, oh, I just forgot the other one. Ham, thank you. Uh, so um, those are the three lines. And so they say that um, Shem's line is basically uh, the pure line, and that these sons of God are basically referring to any like, human being that was born from Shem's line. And so they came, so Seth's line came and had, uh, like got, had relationships with daughters um, that were outside of that line, and this is, this is what happened. I actually believe uh, from just doing biblical studies that this is the, not the way to interpret sons of God. Um, I believe this is not correct. And I'm going to read you from Job, just to, to, to get the quote here. This is in Job chapter 1, verse 6. This is what it says. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan started having a conversation with them. So... Here, here's uh, Satan amongst the sons of God, and they're speaking to the, to, to the Lord himself, like one-on-one. -on -one. And then they say, have you considered my servant Job? Would you go after him? So again, this, the sons of God here is in, the, in, in reference to the angelic realm, not to the uh, human realm. Even stronger is in Job 38, verse 7. He's speaking here at the creation of the world. The creation of the world. And this is really important because uh, Job has been sort of um, frustrated with how life circumstances have gone, and you can see why when you know his story. 
And he starts talking to the Lord, and so the Lord gives him a bit, bit of a pushback. And it's just to say, okay, how, do you think you're smart? Let's see how smart you really are. So this is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? Or where were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the, mor when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Sons of God there is the same as Job 1.6, which is a reference to angelic beings. It says, where were you when the world was created? Because when I created the world, the angels were rejoicing. When they were you there to witness that, Job? And Job, of course, is flat on his back going, of course I wasn't. Like, you know. Sons of God in both in Job, same words, same reference as in Genesis 6. So, the result of this angelic realm with the human being produces this freak hybrid human race. And he said, and it was never God's design that there should be intermingling in this way. And in verse 4, he says, If God did not spare angels, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and put them into darkness, preserved for judgments. He's going back to that time era. That's what I believe he's doing here. If you have another suggestion, that it's something else I'd love to hear, but uh, that's the way I understand this verse. Because clearly this happened. The question is when. And it's interesting timing-wise, because in Genesis it goes, the it goes the fall, it goes the, this passage happens, next event is Noah, next event is Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does he do here in this order? Verse four is the angels, second event, Noah, third, Sodom and Gomorrah. So it just makes sense chronologically, he's using the same stories as well. Jude also describes this event. Just go down to uh, about the fourth line there, where it says angels in red. It says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And these are exhibited as examples in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So again, he's speaking about angels there. Again, he's comparing it to Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of the same basic time period. Went after strange flesh, well, because if you're an angelic, demonic type being, and you're going after a human being, you're, that's strange. <laughs> All right? And so uh, this Jude speaks about the same event as well. And the whole point is this. He's just spoken to the, the church in chapters 2, verses 1 to 3, saying, listen, False teachers and the lifestyle they promote and, and all these types of things have always been judged. People who follow them and their patterns of sin have been judged. He says, I've just told you that God's not asleep. He's not idle and bringing judgment. And let me just give you some examples of how trustworthy his word is in bringing down the hammer on people like this. It was a huge warning to them to be obedient to apostolic teaching and reject false teaching. Okay. So what lessons can we pick up? There's a different, there's probably about ten different ones we could put up. I just put up four to capture the big essence of the sermon. Number one, we can expect false teachers operating in the church today. Peter said, false prophets have always been among you. They will show up in the future amongst you. It's not, they're not afraid of the church. They love the church. They want to be in the church. 
and uh, they can make a lot of money in the church. <laughs> so uh, we can expect them operating today. False teachers are not overt, are not often overt, but subtle in the way they introduce their heretical teaching. They're very, they're very sneaky and subtle in the way they come in. They're not going to make it obvious the first time they show up, and it's their first introductory comment. They're going to intermingle, use Christian terms, Christianese language. They're going to get it, build relationships, and then as they start getting the platform, it's going to start to come out. That's the way they operate. Like I, like I, I was telling you before, um, I remember uh, I listened just for about 20 minutes on the about two years ago, three years ago. Listen to Joel Olstein for 20 minutes on TV. I'd say the first like 13, 14, never heard anything heretical. I was like, well, so far, like, he, hasn't said, he hasn't said anything mind-blowing or anything earth-shattering either, but he's not said anything that I wouldn't agree with and the Bible wouldn't agree with. And then all of a sudden it came. It's like interesting. It just took, it just took enough listening to hear it come out. To be a false teacher, I learned something in this, okay? To be a false teacher, one's message must include either doctrinal or practical error that if adopted will have eternal consequences. So you're not a false teacher just because you say something that's not biblically true. Like, like as in, in mistake. Like let's say for example, I just made a mistake with Sodom and, or uh, the, the angels in Genesis 6. I'm not all of a sudden in this camp. But if I start teaching you heresies doctrinally or heresies lifestyle-wise, that will that will they're unbecoming of a follower of Jesus that you if you adopt and practice they will have eternal consequences in your life so these false teachers are teaching destructive heresies of eternal nature so clearly now this will be fun in dialogue because a lot of the question is well what's what's it, what's a matter of like uh, essential and non-essential like that's kind of like the, the huge debate in churches right but clearly here, if it's anything to do with uh, salvation like, or leading someone away from the Lord in terms of something that matters for being saved, then it's a major issue. And that's heresy. That's heresy. So again, their message must include either doctrinal, theological truths that try to separate you from, uh, from the Lord, or their, their lifestyle uh, ways of living that will separate you from the Lord. And again, they always lead you. So a life of sensuality... That's going to deny the Lord and Master. These are, these are theology and practice. And he's saying, you, you know, that's the issue for a false teacher. None of us in the pulpit have ever, not a single preacher in the world that I can think of, if they're honest, probably can say they got everything 100% right every single time, every single verse. But that doesn't make them a false teacher. Because their, their hearts open and bear before the Lord and they're... they're, they're they're, they're doing everything they can to present truth in an accurate way. These people are doctrinally and practically leading you astray. And finally, false teachers are often known for their greed. They don't care about your spiritual health. They care about your pocketbook. I'm going to lead you to uh, finish with this. It's a quick article. I've uh, cut out half of it, highlighted the main points. I was coming home from Israel, and uh, a guy walked up to me from the tour and says, Andrew, I thought you might like to read this out of interest. And I was home in the airport, and here's what he handed to me. It comes from the Winnipeg Free Press, and the title is uh, right here, Atheist Minister Was Sure She'd Be Fired. She was sure she would be fired, but wasn't. 
So just think about that in like, the, the atheist minister not fired. Interesting, okay, so here's the article. When the United Church of Canada announced in early November it wouldn't fire atheist minister Greta Vosper, a lot of people were taken aback, including Vosper herself. I was very surprised, says Vosper, minister at Toronto's West Hill United Church. I was totally convinced I would end up outside the church. Every indication suggested that that was what was going to happen. As I wrote in December, this is the, the, the journalist. As I wrote in December, Vosper was headed for a formal hearing before the General Council of the United Church of Canada to des decide her future in the denomination. But on November 7th, the Toronto conference to which West Hill belongs offered her a confidential settlement that included dropping the charge that she was not suitable to continue as a United Church minister. Quoting a previous moderator, um, who obviously her, had heard the hearing, uh, he went on to say that the heart of the issue is a tension in the liberal and progressive church between two core values which are quote-unquote central to our identity. The first is our faith in God. The second is our commitment to being an open and inclusive church. This is now Vosper speaking. Everything I teach is consistent with the theological training I received, the six-year-old says of her studies at Queen's Theological College in the late 80s. I was taught the Bible was a human construction. Listen to this in verse 20 of 1 Peter. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. But she was taught that the Bible was a human construction, and there is much wisdom in many texts, both ancient and contemporary. So it's got wisdom, but it's still human in origin. Uh, during her studies, she was told, we don't privilege the Bible anymore, and suggest it has an authority beyond all the wisdom, all the other wisdom available in the world. And that's the article. So right now, if you want to go to West Hills United Church in Toronto, you can sit under an atheist pastor who wants to be inclusive, and you want to, you think she's going to promote the, the Lordship of the Jesus Christ? You think she's going to tell you that you can't live a life of sensuality? I don't want to be her when she stands before the Lord. I do not want to be her.